Corinthians. I have been super excited to preach this series that we've titled Messy Church because if you spent any amount of time in church, if this is your first time in church, by the end of the service, you will recognize and realize that church can be messy, not just physical messes, but we are spiritually messy a lot of times too. And so the title of the series is Messy Church, and the title of the sermon today is The Message of the Cross. The Message of the Cross. As always, I want to thank Chris Thomas for getting these slides made up for me. I've been uh, getting his input each week, and he's been designing these for me. So, Chris, thank you for using your talents and your gifts to make some of these things. So, just as a brief refresher, or if you weren't with us last week, we started off this series, we started off this letter looking at division. One of the messes in the Corinthian church was that they were divided. And one of the issues that happens or can happen in any New Testament church, including this one, is that divisions are possible. And we looked at the fact that Corinth had divided among cliques or leadership or groups. There were certain people that followed Paul, certain that followed Peter, certain that followed Apollos, and some that just thought that they were so high-minded that they didn't need an earthly leader. They just were connected to Jesus above and beyond anybody else. And so the church was divided, and we looked at Paul's argument about the need to be unified in Christ with a common goal and a common message. And today's uh, series and sermon is continuing with the thought of division. So in the context, as I always tell you, so important, the context is still a divided church that needs to be unified. But I'm not going to focus as much this week on that topic of division since we already spoke on it a little bit. But I want to look at the subject that was dividing them and preach on that. And so we will spend some time this morning looking at what the cross, that old rugged cross that we sung about, the cross of Jesus Christ, what message is that cross preaching to us because here's the thing when we talk about division in the church or even outside of the church there is nothing guys that divides any more extreme than the cross it is literally the dividing point between saved and lost people it is the dividing point between the unbeliever and the believer there is no unification between those two parties without the cross and so when we think about that topic of division and unity, the cross is at the crux of that very message. And so, like I told you last week, I'm going to show you the text that we are reading from, but I'm using a paraphrase, which I don't normally ever use, especially to preach from, uh, because they're not accurate. They are a single author's interpretation of what they think the Bible is saying. So I'm using the Living Bible this morning, and I have been and will be, just to read this because I want you to just get a real brief, broad, aerial view of what Paul's saying, and then we're going to come back down into a more literal translation and look at it in depth. But I think this will help us as we read this in a paraphrase. So if you guys can put up that big block of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 18 through 31, here's what it says. I know very well how foolish it sounds to those who are lost when they hear that Jesus died to save them. But we who are saved recognize this message as the very power of God. 
For God says, I will destroy all human plans of salvation, no matter how wise they seem to be, and ignore the best ideas of men, even the most brilliant of them. So what about these wise men, these scholars, these brilliant debaters of this world's great affairs? God has made them all look foolish and shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. For God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never find God through human brilliance. And then He stepped in and saved all those who believed in His message, which the world calls foolish and silly. It seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven as proof that what is preached is true. And it's foolish to the Gentiles because they believe only what agrees with their philosophy and seems wise to them. So when we preach about Christ dying to save them, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But God has opened the eyes of those called to salvation, both Jew and Gentile, to see that Christ is the mighty power of God to save them. Christ himself is the center of God's wise plan for their salvation. This so-called foolishness, foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest plan of the wisest man. And God in his weakness, Christ dying on the cross, is far stronger than any man. Notice among yourselves, dear brothers, that few of you who follow Christ have big names or power or wealth. Instead, God has deliberately chosen to use ideas the world considers foolish and of little worth in order to shame those people considered by the world as wise and great. He has chosen a plan despised by the world, counted as nothing at all, and used it to bring down to nothing those the world considered great so that no one anywhere can ever brag in the presence of God. For it is from God alone that you have your life through Christ Jesus. He showed us God's plan of salvation. He was the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy and gave himself to purchase our salvation. As it says in the scriptures, if anyone is going to boast, let him boast only of what the Lord has done. And the church said... Father, we thank you this morning for this time to gather together. We thank you for your perfect word, and we thank you for the cross that speaks today that sinners are in need of salvation, that we are condemned without the cross, that we are condemned without Christ, but through the grace he offers to all who would look to him in faith, they can be saved and forgiven today. Lord, help us to receive that message, to hear that message, to live and apply that message. May you increase and I decrease, Lord, and we give you all the praise for that today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. So the message of the cross, it speaks of the wisdom of God and the folly of man to think that he can somehow have a relationship with God and know God apart from the wisdom that comes from God and through his own understanding, if you will. I want to ask you a question, as I do most weeks when we start, and I want you to think about the answer that you would give without saying it out. What or why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? I believe that if we we took a poll and asked for answers, most of the answers would center around and focus on the fact that he went to the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have forgiveness. And I want us to think about that because... This morning I may say some things that you've never heard, and I hope that's true. And I may teach some things that you've never considered, and I hope that's true. Because there is much more to the cross than just a message of forgiveness. 
it certainly speaks of forgiveness. But there's much more to it than that. Now, I'm going to be transparent this morning and embarrass my wife, too, at the same time, so I'll kill two birds with one stone. She and I had an argument this week. And as is the case normally when we do argue, which isn't often, but at times it happens, we didn't speak for a moment. There was a period of time where neither one of us were pleased with one another, and so we weren't speaking to one another. And during that time of animosity and division, a wall was erected because we were upset with one another. And so a wall was put up, communication ceased, and the relationship was not broken, but there was a conflict in between. And so as some time progressed, both of us considered the situation and said that forgiveness is what is required. Forgiveness is what is necessary. But I didn't forgive, and I hope she didn't just forgive just because the Bible says I'm supposed to do it, and so I grit my teeth and I do it half-heartedly. I forgave because that wall that was separating our relationship was terrible. And I wanted to have the relationship back with my wife, the communication back with my wife, the love that we need to have back together with my wife. And so that was the motivation of forgiveness, not simply to check a box saying, well, I did what God wanted me to do. And so when we think about forgiveness on the cross, yes, sin has created a divide between lost man and saved man, and even saved man and a sanctified walk with Jesus. There is a separation anytime we are living in sin. But the cross is more than just my get-out-of-hell-free card. It's more than just simply saying, well, now I have a relationship with God so He can give me all sorts of blessings. The cross is much more than that. I want to give you several scriptures this morning. You can jot these down. You don't have to flip to all of them. But I want to start with 1 Peter 3.18. It says there that Christ also suffered how many times? Once. He suffered once for sins. Why did he only suffer once? Because that's all it took. That one perfect sacrifice was all that anyone ever for all time would need. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. It says in 1 Peter that Christ suffered once for sins, the just, Jesus being the just, for the unjust, that being everyone that's ever lived. Why did he do that? I asked that question. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Here's the answer. That he might bring us, those that were outside of him, that he might bring us to God. The purpose of the cross is to bring us back to God. Sin has separated our relationship just as my sin towards my wife had separated us in a relationship. We have got to reconcile. And so God is presenting an opportunity to you this morning who are lost to be reunited with God. The only way to be united with God. So I want to give you this morning quickly five messages from the cross. Five messages from the cross Message number one, if you take notes, write this down. Message number one is a message of reconciliation. The message of the cross is a message of reconciliation. Jesus taught that he is the door 
He is the way. And faith is the hinge that that turns on. There is one door, and it is Jesus. And there is one way, and that is by grace through faith that you receive Him. And when you do that, the relationship between a holy God and sinful man and that gap that is there that cannot be crossed and cannot be fixed and cannot be earned is removed in Christ so that we become one with God once again. I'll give you a verse or two here on that topic. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, And by Him, that is Christ, to reconcile, there's that word, to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Listen, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who are once, listen, this is you this morning if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. And this is all of us at one point in our life before we knew Jesus. It says in that verse, and you who were once alienated, you were separated, you were foreigners, you did not know the kingdom of God nor the king of that kingdom. You were separated. And not only were you separated, you were what? You were what? Enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. He has brought an offended party back together. The message of the cross is that sinners are separated from God for all of eternity by their sin, and the only chance for unification is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Through faith in His perfect sacrifice, you can be united to God. In the passage that we read from Colossians, you talk about another church that was having all sorts of issues. The church in Colossae was a mess too. It was a messy church because they all are, right? And so the problem in Colossae was there was a lot of Gentiles coming in. And the Gentiles were leaving all sorts of false religions and so they were bringing into the church their messes, just like today. And they were bringing into their church their false gods. They, they wanted Jesus, but they were still struggling to let go of these other gods. And a lot of people today are struggling because they want Jesus and the benefits, but they're struggling to let go of the things in the world that are still enjoyable to some degree. And there's a conflict there. And I can tell you this, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you will never have peace until you choose one master. You can't serve two. You can't have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way. Sure, we all struggle. Sure, we all sin. But at some point, you have got to make a decision like Joshua and say, choose this day who you will serve, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm making a decision today. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, you need to make a decision if the Holy Spirit is drawing you and convicting you, you need to make a choice today to say that I will follow Jesus. The issue in Colossae was they were so many gods and so much division amongst gods that Paul actually creates a word here for them. Do you see in Colossians 1, verse 20 and 21 that I read that word reconcile? It's not the normal word reconcile that's used in the Bible. The normal word is catalasso. Paul actually puts a prefix on it 
and calls it apocacatalypso. Why does he do that? Because he is being very specific. He's not just saying be reconciled to an idea, be reconciled to one of these gods. He's saying in an intense form of this word, you have got to be completely and utterly and individually connected and reconciled to Jesus Christ alone. That's the emphasis that he uses in that verse. He gets very specific, and I want to be very specific today. There is salvation in no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to try to intentionally, I'm not going to try to intentionally offend you this morning, but the Bible is offensive to lost people. And so I, it, people always say, are you trying to say that all of the Muslims and all of the Buddhists and all of the Jews and all of the this and all of the that are hell-bound if they reject Jesus? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. You say, boy, that's not politically correct. No, it's not. The Bible has never been politically correct. The reason why that is so shocking to you is because far too many pastors and far too many churches won't say it. It shouldn't be shocking. I shouldn't be the only one up here saying that. And I'm not saying that I am. There are good Bible-believing churches that preach the truth to which I say amen to that. But there are far too many that won't just stand up and say, Jesus is the only way. Why do I believe that? Because he said he was the only way. And why do I believe him? Because I believe he is who he says he was. If I don't believe that, I am sure wasting my time this morning, and I'm definitely wasting yours. I would have slept in, went to Frisch's and got me some breakfast, and sat on my couch and watched football all day. But because I believe this message to be so true and so important, I want to get up and come any chance I can to share that with someone in this room or someone in this world that needs to hear it before they die lost. That's why it matters. That is why it matters, church. Sin separates us. Isaiah 59, verse 2, he says, But your iniquities have separated you. They have literally built barriers, one translation says, from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that he will not hear. Sin separates and there is nothing you can do to fix it, but God did everything needed to fix it when he sent his son to die for your sins. You just have to believe and trust him this morning. What is the result of this message of reconciliation? If you believe it and repent and trust, it is a relationship. You are brought into communion with God. The message of the cross, the first message is reconciliation, and the result of that is a relationship. I want to say another thing that might be offensive to you, but here goes. Might as well not stop now. Here it is. You, we are not, the world is not all children of God. We are not born children of God. We are born again to become children of God. That's the whole issue, right? We are all created by God. We are all part of His creation, but you have got to be saved to become children of God, part of the family of God. The Bible calls that adoption for Gentiles. We are adopted. We are grafted in, if you will, into the spiritual Israel and all the things that Paul talks about in Romans. The relationship can only take place through the cross, and that makes you a friend of God, a child of God, a heir and co-heir with Christ, and all of those glorious things that the Bible says. But until you know Him you don't have any right to claim any of those titles. Message number two, write this one down, a big word, a big theological word that we're going to break down real quick. Message number two of the cross is propitiation. Here's something that, uh, that you might not hear preached on enough, including from me, but I'm going to preach on it for a moment this morning. 
when we think about being forgiven, when we think about the cross and salvation that comes through that, we are not simply saved from sin. We are saved from sin, and for that we rejoice. But hear me well, we are also saved from the wrath of a holy God. Without Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the wrath of God abides on you. God is not up there happy and content to see you rebel and walk and live in your sin. He is a holy God. That Cal read about that verse this morning in our time of confession. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. And His wrath will be poured out on an unbelieving world and is poured out on an unbelieving world. You read the book of Revelation as a believer, it ought to be the most joyous, exciting, hope-filled book in the Bible. But as a believer, it ought to cause you to tremble. An unbeliever, I'm sorry. It ought to cause you to tremble because the judgment that is coming, described in the Bible, is coming upon a lost world. Not believers, but a lost world when God pours out His wrath. The propitiation then, what does that mean? It means that you will stand before God one day in your sins if you have not repented and trusted Christ, and you will be judged and condemned. The Bible talks about it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He says, fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Fear Him. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Listen, John 3.36, I kind of quoted it a minute ago. He, here's as plain black and white as it gets. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. On who? He said the one who does not believe. It abides on you. Here is the good news of that word propitiation, Romans 3.25. Speaking of Jesus, again, it says, God has set forth him to be a propitiation. How do we receive it? Through faith in his blood that he shed on that cross to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of of God. What does that big word propitiation really mean in an easy to understand term? It means satisfied. Satisfaction. God demands justice. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot he cannot sweep it under the rug. He has got to deal with it. And he has dealt with it in the person of his son. But if you reject that offering, then you will have to pay for it yourself. And God has wrath for sin. And he poured out that wrath on his own son. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he went in by himself and he dropped down on his knees. And the Bible says he prayed, as it were, great drops of blood pouring out of his head. And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There are differing opinions on this, but I believe, and I think that I can show in Scripture that it is true, throughout the Old Testament, the cup 
was used of God's judgment. We even see references of that. It might be called a bowl and different things in Revelation, but a pouring out of God's judgment. What was the cup that Jesus wanted to pass from him? It was the cup of God's judgment. It was the sinless Lamb of God taking my sin and your sin upon himself and then bearing the full weight of that with God's judgment upon him and his Father turning his back to him so that he would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would he do that? Because he loved you that much that he would lay down his life, that he loved the Father enough to glorify him and to do his will, regardless of the pain and the suffering and the agony that he would have to experience, because God's justice had to be appeased, and he poured it out on Jesus so that all who trust in him are satisfied, and God is satisfied with them. He will never. You, a lot of people say, why? Why does God still love me when I sin? How can He still love me? I, I, I became a Christian, but I still sin. How is it possible for God to still love me and forgive me when I keep making mistakes and I keep sinning over and over again? My friends, it's because all of your debt was paid on Calvary. It's because all of the righteous judgment that you and I deserved was poured out on Jesus. God is satisfied. What did Jesus say from the cross? It is finished to telestai. It's paid in full. It's covered by the blood. He is satisfied so that in Christ you will never again stand in judgment. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The cross speaks of reconciliation. It speaks of propitiation. Number three, the cross speaks of atonement. The word atonement is a well-known word in the Old Testament, but it is a topic that carries over throughout the Bible. The word atonement means to provide a covering, to wipe away, to completely cancel something out. Perhaps one of the greatest portions of Scripture that speaks of that is the book of Romans, and I'm just going to narrow it down to one little portion of verses, and that is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, and then I'll jump down to verse 12 through 14. This is speaking of some Old Testament illustrations, if you will, that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. That's hard for us to understand in our modern culture. But just realize that day after day, hour after hour, under the sacrificial system, whether at the tabernacle or at the temple, people are constantly bringing their sin offerings to the priest and laying them on the brazen altar and the sacrifices and the blood flowing down and the smoke rising up. And it never ended because the sacrifices could never fully atone for sin. Every time you sinned, another sacrifice. Another sin, another sacrifice. But drop down to verse 12. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered how many sacrifices? One. One sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Listen to verse 14. I love it. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The moment you trust Christ, you are as saved as you'll ever be, as saved as you need to be. You're as loved as you'll ever... Here's one of the greatest struggles that I hear people talk about, and I think we struggle to wrap our minds around it. We are so caught in this system of works and legalism 
that we feel like we still have to do something to make God love us more. We still have to do something to be more acceptable to God. And so we get on this performance treadmill and we're constantly looking at ourselves to say, had a bad day today, God probably hates me. Had a great day today, God's probably pretty happy with me. We're somewhere in between and we're in limbo. And it's this system where we never have peace and you never will have peace if you're looking at yourself to try to gauge where you fall on God's radar. And again, I want to reiterate it this morning to you. There is only two positions, saved and lost. Old J. Vernon McGee through the Bible, he used to say there's only two, the saints and the ain'ts. There's no other position in there. And so listen to me. If you are, the Bible says, Romans 5, 8, I don't have this slide, but here it is. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you are even a thought in your parents' minds, before your name ever existed on earth, before you ever walked or sat in a church building, God thought enough of you, He knew all about you, and He loved you enough to die for you. Before you ever came to Christ, He loved you as much as He could. After you came to Christ, His love did not change one inch. Your relationship changed, but He didn't change. Because if God changes, he's not immutable. And if God's not immutable, he's not God. And I don't want to follow a God that changes daily based on the weather and the circumstances and my attitude. I want to know and I don't want to trust in a God that cannot be moved, that cannot be shaken, that does not change, that is solid and consistent forever. And that's the God that we serve. And so God does not change. He loved you then He loves you now, He'll love you tomorrow, and He'll love you all the way to glory. And then He'll love you there, perfectly and eternally. Don't ever question the love of God, lest we make a mockery of what He did on Calvary's cross. It's the epitome of pride to think that that wasn't enough, and He wasn't enough, and somehow I can bring something to the table that makes it more palatable and more useful. There's nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. That's the only answer. It's a message of atonement. It washes us clean in the sight of God. The fourth message of the cross, write this one down, it is a message of substitution. A message of substitution. One of my favorite things to talk about and preach about is the substitutionary work of Jesus on our behalf. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? There's a verse of Scripture in Proverbs Proverbs 17, 15, it says, listen to this, he who justifies, what does that word justify mean? It's a legal term. What does it mean? It means to declare, to speak a sentence of not guilty. Oftentimes we think, well, God is the judge and he is the judge. But your court case already took place if you're in Christ. And when you trusted Jesus and He washed away your sins, and He reconciled you to God, and He satisfied the wrath that you deserved. God looks at you now as a new creature in Christ, and He says, not guilty. Not guilty. What sin can God hold against you if Jesus paid it all? None. You can rattle off the list that's a mile long. And he's going to stamp paid in full on every one of them. 
past, present, and future. The blood of Jesus Christ either paid for it all or we are dead in trespasses and sins. He was one sacrifice. I've read several scriptures. He's not coming back to die again. And as an ex-Catholic, he's not dying for me every time I took the Mass. Like, I don't get saved every week when I take communion. I don't have to come up here to the altar every Sunday and get saved again. You either got it all or you got none of it. And you better make sure you got it all. Once you got it all, that doesn't mean you'll never sin or struggle or doubt or anything else. But it means you can rest in Christ because you're not guilty. You're justified in Christ. Listen to that verse in Proverbs. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just. Now listen to this. This might be confusing at first. He who justifies the wicked. We just said God does that. He declares wicked sinners like us not guilty through faith in Christ. And he who condemns the just. He condemned the just Jesus in our place. He did both of those things, did he not? He justified the wicked and he condemned the just one. What does it say about that? Both are an abomination to the Lord. How could God justify the wicked, condemn His perfect Son, and not be an abomination like this verse says? Because of substitution. You say, what does that mean, Pastor? It is because God, in His love and in His sovereignty, became like one of us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born of a virgin. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Galatians 4.4. 4. That was the purpose for which Christ came. You say, I don't understand why He had to become a man. Because He had to fulfill the law perfectly. You and I have been declared not declared guilty rather by the law we are condemned under the law Jesus came and fulfilled it perfectly for us he lived that righteous life that we could never live why does that matter because he went sinlessly to the cross he went obediently in all things to the cross and he laid down his life in perfection as the lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world one of my favorite verses. You hear me quote it all the time. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And here is the transaction. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ would come. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed or he was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds or by his stripes, we have been healed. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. The big word that goes along with substitution is imputation. What does that mean? It means not only did Christ die to wash away your sins, He gave you something in return. He gave you His righteousness. So many times we struggle because we all know that after we get saved, we still blow it all the time. We still sin an awful lot. We still struggle an awful lot. And the good news is, God's wrath was satisfied on Jesus. 
And when he looks at Chris and he sees that I have fallen short, he doesn't say, well, there's another day where he didn't figure it out yet. There's another day where he blew it because he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness so that I would never be judged by that standard because salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. And so that righteousness is given to us. We are innocent, not guilty, perfect, saints, holy, all those things that we may struggle to call ourselves by, we are called by those names in the Bible, not because we've earned it, not because we live up to that title, but He did. And it's His righteousness and His blood and everything that we have is His. And we just get to partake in it by faith. Last one and I'm done. Message number five is a message of redemption. I think this is amazing that one day, hopefully soon, when we gather around that throne in heaven, every tribe, nation, and tongue, every believer of all time, and stand before that throne, one of the things we're going to do besides probably cry and shout and snot on ourselves and everything else, I will anyway for sure, is we're going to sing. Revelation 5.9, you don't get a choice of what you're going to sing, by the way. He already tells us what we're going to sing, but you won't care because you're going to want to sing it. It says they sang a new song. And here's, here's part of the verse. You, practice, you start practicing this now so you're ready when you get there. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain, and listen to this, have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He redeemed us. I love that word. It means to buy back, to purchase. The Bible says that apart from Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to unrighteousness. And Jesus comes in and he pays the price to buy us out of the slave market and make us followers of Jesus. Now listen, this is another thing that's uncomfortable to us in our culture. But our freedom does not mean that we're free to do anything we want to do. Because the Bible says we are, without Jesus, we are slaves to sin. But when Jesus bought us, we're His. You are not your own. This is where a lot of people get uncomfortable as Americans because we love our freedom. But the Bible says you are not your own. You've been bought, purchased, literally redeemed with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. We don't get to do what we want after we get saved. We get to do what He wants us to do. And we become slaves to righteousness. We become slaves to Jesus Christ. But not a begrudging slavery, a willing slavery that says, I want to go where He wants me to go. I want to follow Him where He takes me. I trust Him where He leads. Where He leads me, I will follow. I'll go with Him, with Him all the way. That's the attitude that we need to have. One more verse, I'm done, I promise. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But how were we redeemed? 
with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or without spot. He purchased us, church. He paid the price. If you're here today and lost, watching online today and you're lost, Jesus paid for your freedom. But you've got to receive that gift by faith. And you've got to be willing to follow him when you come. It's not, well, I'll have Jesus and still live how I want to live. It's a surrender. It's a laying down of sin. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Yes, it's by faith, but repentance is on the other side of that same coin. You have got to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. You can't walk with the world and with him both. But when he buys you back, you will see and you will know that he is worthy. I'm going to invite Phyllis and Shane to come. And as they're coming, most of you know John Newton. Not personally, but the name. Most of you would probably know, if you don't know John Newton, you would know that he wrote Amazing Grace. But John Newton wrote a lot of other songs. I'm not familiar with this song, but the song is titled The Cross. I'm not going to sing it, but I want to read a verse to you, and I want you to think about these words, about the message of that cross that we talked about today that Paul mentioned in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, this message of the cross that divides the world, that causes the Jews to stumble and the Greeks to think they're so wise, and the world still feels that way today. Worldly wisdom mocks and laughs at the cross. They think we're fools for gathering here in this room and worshiping a God that we can't see with our eyes, to which I say, you call me a fool all you want, but I will be the last one laughing one day. And I hope that you're not here to see that. Here's what John Newton wrote. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure never till my latest breath shall I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. Today if you're lost, you need to recognize that your sin has separated you from God and only the cross of Jesus Christ can forgive you and reconcile you. And if you need that today, at this invitation, we ask you to come and let us share Jesus and his gospel with you so that you can know him today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to be in your house. And now we thank you for the spirit moving and drawing, Lord, those to repentance and salvation. Whatever the need, Lord, may they hear your voice and answer it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.